Today's episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. This episode is brought to you by Kamlan. Kamlan is a post-apocalyptic urban fantasy podcast inspired by folklore and Arthurian legends. It's written and directed by Ella Watts, who you may know from her work from Doctor Who Redacted and Eliza, A Robot Story, and produced by Amber Devereaux at Tin Can Audio. Y'all, this is one of my favorite new podcasts. I am so excited for you to hear it. It's tightly written with mythic weight and personal stakes and just absolutely gorgeous sound design. Go subscribe to Kamlan, that's C-A-M-L-A-A-N, wherever you're listening to this, and stay tuned at the end of the episode for a trailer for the show. The Fable and Folly Network supports creators of exceptional audio stories, including the one you're listening to right now. If you love our shows, we want to hear from you. Complete our listener survey at fableandfolly.com survey. This will help us learn more about you, what you like, what you'd like to hear more of, and how we can maintain an inclusive, safe atmosphere. As a thank you for your participation, we have extras and behind-the-scenes content from your favorite shows. Fans make the network what it is. Thanks for listening, and we can't wait to hear from you. Find our listener survey at fableandfolly.com survey today. Hello, this is Eleanor Hyde, executive producer of Unwell. Uh, Welcome. I am excited. Jeffrey and I have gotten together here just after New Year's to answer a bunch of questions from our listeners. Uh, We collected a bunch of these questions. We're going to go through some of them and share some of the behind the scenes of how this show comes together. Hey, Jeffrey. Hey, Eleanor. Havelock asks, what was your favorite episode to work on this season? And Meaning again, that's season four. Season four. Can I remember that far back? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so one of my favorite episodes this season was season four, episode eight, which is the episode where Rudy, Nora, and Abby all climbed the mountain. Oh, yeah. Um, that was a delightful episode to work on for a number of reasons. And there is our new kitten, Fanwee, saying hi. There's there's going to be a lot of meows in the background of this. She really wants to be part of the fun. She is very excited. Uh, anyway, uh, so yeah, episode eight was a lot of fun for a number of reasons. I both directed and sound designed that episode. And so um, it's a really fun episode uh, just in terms of like a three-hander with everyone playing off of each other. And there's a lot of really interesting dynamics there. Uh, the other really exciting thing was that I got to write the star music that happens in uh, kind of the end, towards the end of this the episode. And uh, I don't have all of that many opportunities to compose for audio fiction. And um, that was a piece that I built 
uh, using my modular synthesizer, and it was just a joy. It was a lot of fun. I think I'm having trouble answering this question because the process of writing season four was like we did it one and a half times, Mm -hmm. which I think is a story worth sharing that like that like we so we wrote season four during the pandemic. And I and I want to say it probably we probably started writing it in like January or February of 21 and then, you know, we usually try to write the whole season over the course of like four or five months, which means that I don't know about the rest of you, but that is the time that I will remember as like the deepest, darkest pandemic, but like, you know, in the six months leading up to getting vaccinated. Um, so it was a tough time. And I think as a writing team, that was very much reflected in that first draft of season four. And we all looked at season four and then sort of like, collectively agreed like oh this this really needs major changes we probably rewrote like a significantly 50 percent of it yeah i would say changed so one of the episodes that i remember really fondly is the crafternoon episode Mm -hmm. because that is an episode that changed just dramatically between the first draft and the second draft that in the first draft there was a crafternoon yeah we actually we got to go to the craft and they all and everybody went to the crafternoon and there was you know conflicts that popped up because some of the town felt that you know the right way to handle all the wolves in town was just soldier on and do the thing and some of the town was like no this is dangerous we shouldn't be doing this and the the wolves as pandemic was text rather than subtext yeah it was it was pretty right on the nose and and Rudy in particular in that episode had a very strong reaction to all of what was going on. And we felt like that needed to be reined in so that he could have a longer arc over the course of the scene, blah, 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 lots of things. And yet there's something essentially about the idea of the crafternoon and like the role it plays in the community that's that stays from that first draft to the mm-hmm. second draft and the way in which like it kind of places something in the town that I really enjoy and appreciate. So yeah, that's one of the episodes in the season that I I have a lot of fondness for because of yeah. that. I'm trying to think, we kind of have a, a signature event. Do we have one every season? Yeah. Season one, we have both the pageant and the um, celery festival. We have Halloween. Halloween in season three. No, that's season two. Oh, that's season two. Halloween is season because it goes summer, fall, winter, oh, that's spring. Right. That's right. Right. So it's so the summer is the celery fest, fall is the um is Halloween. Mm-hmm. Winter we don't. We just we did a Christmas episode instead yeah. and mm-hmm. which is like not a town event, but it But yes, yeah, feels we, feels we, we treated it a little bit like that in the New Year's episode. I remember treating sort of similarly. Yeah. And then the spring one is like afternoon. Yes. Yeah. 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 Huh, that's interesting. Yeah. Thank you for that question. Yami Kaku asked us, was five seasons always planned? And the short answer is yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think at the very, very beginning, this was in part because we felt like it was better to just have a plan for mm-hmm. how long it was going to be so that we could make a plan for that. And also because then you're not asking people to commit to a project for their entire lives. 
even if five years is a long time. <laughs> um, uh, but as it went on, it, it I would say, like, by the time we were writing season two, it felt pr- like a pretty strong choice to be like, nope, this is the right amount of storytelling to tell this story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I really love stories that know how long they're going to be and very deliberately walk through their um, uh, their arcs in that way. And I think I think planning out the five seasons from the beginning let us very deliberately make choices of how much we were going to reveal each season, etc. Glenn asked us, compared to your original vision for the show, characters and plot lines, what is the biggest diversion that has occurred over time and why did those altered plans happen? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I mean, the the big kind of obvious one to talk about is the pandemic. Like, that happened in the middle of our writing season three. And I think we all learned a ton um, and changed a ton over those couple years. And I think there is a lot in the fabric of Unwell, even stuff that doesn't respond directly to the pandemic, that is very different because we're all very different people from when we started. Yeah, it's interesting. I think um, having written season five, so like, you know, for Jeffrey and I answering these questions, like we now have the whole story in our in our heads and in our hearts. Mm-hmm. And and in fact, having recorded all of season yeah, five, so yeah. it's like it has all been we we know yeah, how it all sounds. It's, it's on tape. Uh, it's in the can, as they say. I now would say that Unwell is a story about grief. Mm. And I don't think I knew that until the end. Mm-hmm. Like, I think for me, that's probably like the biggest shift is that at the beginning, if you'd asked me what the show was about, I would have said it's about uh, family and it's about memory and it's about place. And all those things are still true. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, like as we've gotten closer, as we've gotten towards the ending and as my relationship to the show has changed, like, that core question of like, what is the story about mm-hmm. has really shifted. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that has a lot to do with the way the last couple of years have gone for, you know, us externally. So yeah. that's yeah. like that, that's a, that, you know, it, that's connected to your point about the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think if I have a like cuter answer, like, <laughs> <laughs> like, um, I think Chester's yeah. storyline is one that has surprised me. Mm-hmm. From the very beginning, it was important to me that Chester was an antagonist who deeply believed he was right. And that you as a as a listener could sort of be like, oh, no, I understand where he's coming from. Like, I remember really early on, we put all the characters in Hogwarts houses uh-huh. and we said that Chester was a Gryffindor. Mm-hmm. Like Chester is a person who believes this is the right thing, even if we as an audience think he is very wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and as time has gone on, the sort of like nuance of Chester and the way that he has like become more and more integral to the plot and the sort of like arc of how we find like a find a common ground in Mm -hmm. this town has been really surprising to me 
Yeah. I mean, I think a big piece of that is figuring out partway through that Chester was a father. Oh, yeah. That unlocked something really interesting. Yeah. And I think that having that, like, deep connection with him and, you know, two out of four of our writers are parents and and letting Chester be kind of a place to engage with ideas about parenthood was really important. Yeah, I would agree. This is a question from Caroline. Uh, Hi, everyone. The concept of watering the stones weaves all through the unwell stories. Have the writers taken cues from the spiritual legacy of Native Americans and their use of stone fetishes and stone spirits? And do the prominent roles role of wolves in the story also refer to Native American wolf mythology? Thanks. That's a really interesting that's question. That's a really interesting question. Um, and I'm going to say no. Uh, that's actually not where that comes from or really tied to this story at all. And there's actually a really, really important reason behind that. Um, when we kicked off Unwell, we talked a lot about how we wanted to tell a story that kind of engages with the past. And when you do a story like that in America, you are going to have to reckon with and think about colonization, indigenous people, the enslavement of black people in this country, um, a a huge number of things. But um, there is a tendency when... um, Uh, and and Eleanor and I are both white Americans, when people like us are telling stories that involve indigenous American people, there is is a a tendency to mythologize and to, you know, have this trope of the magical native person. And we really wanted to avoid that. And so, yeah... No, we we wanted to tell a story that wasn't appropriating or um, kind of exploiting anything like that. That was really important to us. So that's not to say that like we couldn't have done it by mistake, mm-hmm. right? Like yes, I want to I want to own that. Like storytellers do sometimes weave things into their stories without noticing it, mm-hmm. but. There is an element to the way the mythology of Unwell is built that all of the things that are happening in the town, all of the sort of vocabulary, the myths, the the why is it wolves that show up as opposed to something else, they are all in some way coming from or in response to the people who currently live there. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying that in kind of a vague way because I'm not I'm trying not to like tip too much of our hand here, but that has been a a guidepost that we have tried to use to not fall into that trap of pulling on what are essentially stereotypes to like create a a sense of mythology 
that are that everyone carries with them a set of, you know, things that scare them and things that they believe about how the world works and ways that they talk about you know, God or the universe or the world or what have you. And that it is those those mythologies, those things that people carry with them into Mount Absalom, that the thing, the weird things that are happening in the town are all pulling from that. <laughs> um, I don't... I don't know. I'm like, I feel like I'm walking right on this line. And I can't decide <laughs> if I've like said too much or too little. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's tough because I think, I think it's a really fair question to ask of us. And it's one mm-hmm. that we have asked internally over and over again, because we've also wrestled really hard with the idea of like, when you, when you tell a story, a Gothic story, one of the, the inherent pieces of a Gothic story is that they're stories about place. And so when you wrestle with place, you at some point have to make a decision about when did history start? And one of the biggest pitfalls of American storytelling about this stuff is the idea that the history started when white people showed up. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's something we have consistently struggled with how to navigate in a way that is both acknowledging of the fact that the history of Mount Absalom starts far, far before the arrival of white settlers. Mm-hmm. And also, we don't want to tell an Indian burial ground story. Yeah. Like, we don't want to be telling a story that is like, oh, you built your town on an Indian burial ground, and that's why all these things are happening. Like, that is very much not the story we wanted to tell. And that... Ultimately, I think Unwell is in part a story about the tension between those two ideas. Sure, That, like, we as storytellers and as white folks trying to figure out how to talk about our place in this country are, like, looking at both those things and going, okay, this is hard. Let's see what happens. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, the short answer is no. We tried really hard, actually, not to kind of go to Native American folklore and mythology and go great we'll just we'll use some of that yeah. we tried really hard to not do that we'll use that as our supernatural base i you know i also want to say um and i feel like this is is kind of in relation to this question um i want to talk about one of the places where i feel like we fell down a little bit um or and and let me make that more specific where i fell down in how i was thinking about this story in um, in relation to indigenous people in America, I think it's really notable that, you know, we work very hard to be really respectful and not and not fall into the tropes of, of yeah, burial grounds and and magic native peoples and things like that. But what what we did end up with is a story where, the indigenous Americans are all in the past. Mm-hmm. It is all past tense. And during the process of unwell, um, a thing that has been pointed out to me by people who I have talked to about the story, um, you know, uh, friends who are from indigenous communities have said, yeah, like that's, this is just perpetuating the kind of, the the trope of 
indigenous people don't exist anymore. And, and that's something that would require, you know, starting over from season one, uh, but something that uh, uh, I'd like to fix next time. We keep getting better at yep. it, we hope. Yep. Yeah. All right. Our next question is from Sarah. If at least three people know that Dot didn't water the stones, why don't they go water the dang stones? All caps. Thank Great you, Sarah. question, Sarah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a great question. Somebody should probably just do it, and um, then the, not, the, there wouldn't be a story. <laughs> Nothing would have ever happened. <laughs> it, w- it wouldn't have been a big deal. No. Uh- <laughs> Uh, I think I think maybe a more fair answer to this question, though, is that there is an implication early in the story that no one really understands why this is important. Mm-hmm. That the idea that this is actually of significance is sort of lost on everyone. Well, and and we do we do hear a couple of times sprinkled through the story. Uh, times where people have continued to water the stones, but there's also an implication of like. It was missed enough that it's too bad. Oh yeah, and um, I love I love the bit where it's like uh, Dot asks Rudy. Mm-hmm. Dot's like, "Hey, Rudy," or Rudy tells this story, but it's like, "Could you take this bottle of water and dump it on the foundation of the observatory?" Uh-huh. And Rudy's like, "Wow, that really sounds like a horror movie kind of thing to do." And somebody's like, "Well, did you do it?" And he's like, "No, <laughs> I don't want to open that." gateway to hell or whatever uh-huh. and you're like uh-huh. well yeah. and, and Good you, job, hear, Rudy. <laughs> you hear the story or, or Wes says hey dot i uh i threw that water bottle at town or that uh that water, water balloon, balloon at yeah. town hall <laughs> i don't know why that's important to you uh-huh. but yeah it feels just like a prank on chester yeah good times from taylor how did you figure out the pacing of and well I'm assuming you got a 12-episode block for each season and needed to fill it. What was your process making the story fit the way you needed to it? I'm new to podcast writing, and pacing is my biggest fear. This is a great question. This is a fantastic question and a very hard thing. And a very difficult question to answer. So I figured, I thought it would be interesting to chat a little bit about, like, our process of how we, like, go from, okay, we have to fill 12 episodes, what do we put in them? to actually like having 12 scripts. Um, Cause I think this will kind of start to get towards the answer. But also, I also want to start by saying that like, there isn't a right answer. Like if Taylor is asking like, how do I get good at this? Like, mm-hmm. I don't know that my answer is going to be the right answer for you. Because mm-hmm. if you listen to a bunch of different fiction podcasts, they are paced very differently. And our show has a slow burn quality to mm-hmm. it. And a very like, character driven storytelling element to it that I think sets a lot of the pacing. Yeah. But generally the way that we write a season is we get our writing team together, which is six of us, the four uh, writers, Jess, Jess, Bilal and Jim, and then Jeffrey and I, Mm -hmm. and we get together and we do, we, we do a bunch of brainstorming about things we want to see in a given season things that weren't tied up that we want to, you know, continue on, themes we want to see more of. It usually involves a lot of post-it notes (laughs) either on a wall or if we're doing this remotely, like on a 
Google Jamboard on a Google Jamboard. Um, and then we start to fill in kind of where are the places we are, where are we now and where do we want to get to by the end of the season? Like what's the, what's the signposts for the beginning and the end? Um, we also try to usually put a significant plot point in episode six mm-hmm. because we do a big break between episode six and seven. And so we usually treat the season like it's two acts of a mm-hmm. play, let's say. And your first half, one through six, have a sort of arc with a with a climax, and your second half, seven through twelve, have a arc with a with a climax. And it's worth saying that those end up being slightly different. You know, the we get to the six hill and that's usually a a cliffhanger that leaves us hanging up high. Yeah. And then we go through seven to eleven. Mm-hmm. And we always talk about eleven being our pinnacle of the full season. The punch. That's, yeah, that's things like the celery festival episode. Um, into in it's when they go down into the hole yeah. in the under the observatory and Wes f- finds out. Yep. Um, yep. And then usually twelve has a sort of denouement quality yeah. to it, where mm-hmm. everybody goes, "Oh shit, what just happened?" And we kind of close some thoughts and set up some thoughts for the next season. Yeah. So those are kind of the major signposts. But the part of this process that I always find the most amusing is there always seems to be for this team a point in the process where it's like we've thrown all these post-it notes on the wall. There's all these ideas. We kind of vaguely have agreed that like here's what goes in episode six. Now what? And usually what happens in that point is I take all the post-it notes and I go away somewhere else and I map the season. Mm-hmm. I usually go away and I, and what I'll do is I'll I get, I will usually take 12 pieces of, you know, six by 11, like just printer paper and spread them out on a table and start moving the post-it notes around and go like, uh, <laughs> I think that works. And then I usually bring that back to the team mm-hmm. and say like, And the way I usually frame it is like, here is a straw man of what I think the season should be. And then we push on it and we figure out like, what's, you know, do we actually track all the characters through it? Or have we lost track of somebody for too long and we need to weave them back in? Um, Is this too much of one thing or too much of another thing? And one of the things that I've learned from Jim that I really appreciate is Jim has a really good sense for looking at a whole season and thinking about the balance between like action set pieces and character driven episodes. Mm -hmm. And so he will often, I feel like look at a season and go like, all right, so in this episode, something explodes and this episode, something explodes. And then in this episode, something explodes. And somewhere in between those, we need some episodes where people just like talk to each other. Yeah. And we and and it gives the story a little bit of room to breathe. It gives the story a place where um you hear characters react to the explosions mm-hmm. and sort of you understand how everybody's point of view is shifting a little bit or the relationships between people are changing based on the explosions and like that is a that that's a I feel like that's a pacing thing that like 
I've gotten better at over the five years of doing this show. And I feel like I've learned from our team Mm -hmm. how to kind of like look across the episodes and say, like, you want a mix. You want, you know, some explosions and some moments where everybody goes, oh, my God, can you believe that thing exploded? Yeah, I, I feel like there's a really interesting thing with audio fiction specifically that is 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 less so in a serialized format like television where um you know you've also got visuals that like you need more more time to I'm, I'm going to use show you need more time to show character growth and characters processing stuff because because you don't get see you know you don't get montages or or you know, long moments where you just get to watch people going about their days or, you know, walking up to a house and and reading about what they're like. Or even I feel like often in films that are very, you know, driven by emotion, a lot of that emotion comes in like the thing that is unsaid or Mm -hmm. the moment when you see someone's face change across, you know, in reaction to something or you see, you know, there, there's a lot of emotion that can be driven by what how you see someone react. Mm-hmm. And in audio, like, they either have to say it or very notably not say it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so I really enjoy that in our sort of story crafting and writing process because I think it's really interesting mm-hmm. to hear people talk about their feelings and to process things. Yeah. I think that's really compelling. <laughs> and... Audio encourages that as a way to get your story across. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know, I think the um, one of the other tools that can be really useful for this is the uh, – we do a full cast read mm-hmm. where in one or two days we read the entire sh- season with as much of the cast as we can put together. And that actually is really helpful for noticing how is the pacing going – do we have two very similar episodes back to back or too close to each other? Um, are we only seeing Wes in the first half of the season and not at all in the second half of the season? Things like that. I, I will say, I think we are very lucky both in that we have a writer's room where we read things out loud. Mm-hmm. And then we also have this chance to do the f- full cast table read. Yeah. And those are both chances to hear the words out loud, which gives you a much better sense of pacing than yeah. reading it on the page. And so I'm now working on a number of other audio fiction projects outside of Unwell. And I have started to really notice the difference between writers who write on their own and don't get a chance to hear their work out loud Mm -hmm. and writers who work as part of a team and get just because there's more of you, it's easier to read it out loud. Sure. Um, And yeah, I, I, <laughs> that would be one very big piece of advice is if you're writing on your own, like find some friends, like yeah. bring some people together, like find a way to hear your scripts out loud mm-hmm. because you will learn a lot about how they work. Yeah, absolutely. Sarah says, I loved the fact that the voice actor for the waitress in Hunters reminds me of Nurse Diesel from High Anxiety. Good job. 
Sarah, thank you so much for listening and for the great compliment. I have to confess, I've never actually seen high anxiety. And when I saw your feedback, I went back and forth for a couple of days about whether or not I wanted to give it a listen before or after we recorded our final episodes. And ultimately, I decided I was going to give it to myself as a treat after we were finished recording. So I didn't want to... Uh, uh, adversely affect my performance by uh, putting in a different perspective that wasn't consistent with what I had been doing before. But I also didn't want to be uh, accidentally uh, do it wrong and disappoint you. So thank you so much. I'm really excited about checking out the movie now. Kyle Winchester asks, what was the inspiration for Unwell? Was there a book or film that sparked the idea to write the show? Um, that's a great question, and there are a whole lot. I think you and I should just pick one each. Yes. Because we've answered this question a lot before. That's and true. we have, we will often go on way too long. <laughs> we do tend to ramble. Um, so, but I feel like if we each picked one, uh-huh. that would yeah. be fun. Um, I think the one that's top of mind for me that I'll say is that when we started Early, early, when we started working on this show, one of the things I brought to the table that is like really made it through to the end mm-hmm. is I really, really wanted to tell a story about Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. That was really important to me. I was like there and, and particularly as I was thinking about like the gothic space and horror and like what scares me mm-hmm. and like thinking about, you know, what scares me most in this world. Um memory loss and aging relatives is a thing that impacts almost all of us. Mm -hmm. Like I remember at one point at one of our early table reads asking the team, like who all has someone they love who's lost their memory in old age. And I think like 90% of the room raised Mm -hmm. their hands. It's, it's a nearly universal experience and there, I, I wanted more stories about it. Sure. I wanted, an opportunity to try and explore some of the things that are hard about that in a fictional space because I, I couldn't find stories that mm-hmm. were serving my needs elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Um, I will, I, I want to talk about one of the inspirations that I mention but don't, uh, go into a lot, and that's the the television show Gravity Falls. Yes. Um, <laughs> Wait, can I just say? Yeah. So when my parents finally got um, Disney Plus, my dad watched Gravity Falls, and he calls me up and he goes, "This show is exactly like Unwell. <laughs> Did you guys know about this show?" And I was like, "This show is one of Jeffrey's like number one influence." Uh huh. Uh-huh. But my dad was like, it's like beat for beat, exactly like Unwell. And I was like, yeah, I know, Dad. Uh-huh. It's I, I I found it, it's a show, it, obviously it's way zanier and wackier, but it's, it's a show that has a lot of really fantastic mystery. And it's also uh, about a family that has conflict and also like deeply loves each other. And uh, where everyone is imperfect and still tries to be there for each other, even when they screw up. And and I think I was really excited both by the kind of the way it was mysterious and scary. And also it was a place that I really 
wanted to live and wanted to like be there and experience. I think, you know, if you're going back to watch it, it's worth saying that it has a whole bunch of gender essentialism that hasn't <laughs> yeah. aged super well and uh, is not so much reflected in an unwell, but it's a great show. It's yeah, it's three seasons. I also liked how contained it was and how it, it kind of uh, let itself feel a little too short. It feels a little bit like a summer it's told over the course of one summer. And it, it- I also, so I didn't watch gravity falls until we were like, well into writing mm-hmm. the show. Um, I think I watched it after my dad was like, you really got to watch this show. <laughs> and, um, and one of the things that Gravity Falls shares with Unwell, I feel like, is an ethos of this weird shit is fun. Mm-hmm. Or like there can be joy and beauty inside of the weird. Yeah. That like that like even though it is kind of scary to be like, that's not how the world is supposed to work. Mm-hmm. There's also like a joy and a fun and a like okay, but like, I want to, I want to know more. And like, I I like being in this place where everything is so weird. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though I can't explain it, it's a little bit scary. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Ash asks, how did you decide on Southern Ohio as the location of Mount Absalom? And how do you feel the setting has shaped the story? Uh, That's a great question. Um, so Jeffrey decided, yeah, this was, it, it, well, so yes, <laughs> yes, I was, I was very firm on it being Ohio. Um, there was an alternate version of this, uh, that was very nearly set, um, in the upper peninsula of Michigan that I think Jim was really in favor of, or maybe I don't remember that. Maybe it was Northern Minneapolis. Um, none of that he made a, a bell. <laughs> very, a very, very strong pitch for um, one of the kind of further north Midwestern locations. Then we could have had more loons. We could have had more loons. We have been a little a little fast and loose with some of the animals that appear in this story. Um, no, uh, yeah, I, I spent a bunch of time living in central Ohio, in rural central Ohio. And so that setting was very important. Um, and then uh, I think we, we shifted it south mostly because that's where the bumper celery crops are. Oh my God, that's um, right. That is why yeah. we did it. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's so funny. I forgot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We like decided we, when we were writing season one, we knew we wanted to have a big agricultural festival mm-hmm. and we decided it was going to be celery. And then we were like, well, where do they grow celery? Uh-huh. <laughs> Shit, we got to look that up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't remember which of the writers. One of the writers, you know, did a bunch of research and was like, "It was probably Jim, Jim, Jim or or Jess Best, I think." Yeah, um, were like, "Well, I went and Googled all of the 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 staple crops of Ohio, and celery is the funniest." Um, yep, agreed. <laughs> Taylor asks, "What was the character naming process like? Was it a, yeah, this is the right vibe and time period thing, or did you look into history and meanings and such?" So when we named all our main characters, like our core cast, I remember doing this thing with the writing team where we all wrote down a bunch of names mm-hmm. and we like put them up on the wall and talked about the and sort of like, you know, like we had to decide what 
Dot and Lily's surname is and mm-hmm. things like that. It was like just lots of decisions to make. So we like threw a bunch of names on the wall and kind of just like worked through until we got to consensus. Uh-huh. But I'll tell you the um the thing that sticks in my brain from that is that we were gonna they were gonna be named right. Lily and Dorothy Wright, like W R I G H T. And Jess Buha's maiden name is Wright. And she pipes up and she goes, That people misunderstand that all the time. That is a mm-hmm. homonym. You can't put that in a podcast. Yeah. It doesn't like people won't hear it. Like you can't. And I was like, Oh, duh. That uh-huh. makes perfect sense. Because like, <laughs> I think we all really enjoyed the sort of like, implications or like metaphors of the name right mm-hmm. and all the things that come with that but then like she, she said that and it was like oh throw that one out yeah, never mind yeah and that and that's and i think we got to harper from there that it was mm-hmm. like we were trying to find something that was that like had a similar feeling yeah that like had that sort of like it captures something about like um like a like a maker mm-hmm. like a a a I don't know. I feel like it evokes this idea of like a person who can can make things in the world, which I appreciate. Uh, but yeah, mostly I just remember it kind of being like we were like, ah, oh, that's that's a cool name. Uh-huh. We like that one. I remember Marisol happened like very fast. Yes, we're like yes. that is that is a a perfect name. We love it. Yep. Um, um, so then there's other outside of our kind of core cast from season one characters who get introduced later in the story or smaller characters are almost entirely determined by the writer who first introduced them. Mm -hmm. So most significantly is like Bilal named Nora, Mm -hmm. like Nora's key biographical uh, pieces were all determined by Bilal. And, a lot of the historical characters who like, you know, family members and whatnot um, were named by the writer who first introduced them. Mm-hmm. But also I think it's worth sharing that like also pretty early on, somewhere in between, I think seasons one and seasons two writing process, Jim wrote a history of Mount Absalom starting mm-hmm. with like the Big Bang. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so Jim, I think, deserves credit for naming a lot of the um, sort of branches of Dot and Lily's lineage, hmm. the sort of like who owned the house when and yeah. when did it change from na- maiden the name Lyles, to married name. To the Fenwood, to yeah, the Harpers. Yeah. Yep. And like when was the house built and what was there beforehand and like kind of all of that superstructure for mm-hmm. the family would I think Jim deserves a lot of credit for that. Yeah. Um but like Josephine versus Caroline, like mm-hmm. whoever wrote that episode probably just yeah. made it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um I'm I'm trying to remember see if I can remember any like other names that almost were and got switched. I mean I think the other thing I remember kind of trying to pull on was like choosing names in some places that evoked generation mm-hmm. or like age like hazel is a name that i think is meant to imply something about how old she is mm-hmm. dorothy definitely is dorothy is definitely a name that we chose to try and imply something about her age 
I'm also trying to remember whether Wes or the Theodore Wesley reveal came first. Like if we said this character is named Theodore Wesley, I think I think I Wes, think Wes came, came first. first. I feel pretty confident about that. And then we wanted to figure out a way that his name could be on a tombstone yeah. that I mean, if again, if we had visuals, we could show the tombstone yeah. and it would be less intense and less, but like because we had to say it out loud at some point, it had to not be directly Wes. Yeah. Yeah, also like <laughs> I was watching the Twilight Zone uh-huh. uh on New Year's Eve. And uh there's something about like pan to the pan to the gravestone with the name on it that's very Twilight Zone. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, our actors um answered a little bit of this, but I said I would I would talk about it more. Shelby asks have any of the actors improvised lines? If so, what is one of your favorite improvised lines and why? Um, I mean, Michael improvises all the time. It just doesn't make it into the show. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, you know, folks, there is an entire podcast of the Wes and Abby show yeah. that uh, Kat and Michael have improvised in during sound checks and things like that. Um, so I want to I want to talk a little bit about um, the writing. And and kind of how we how we work with the scripts and then tell a couple of improvised line stories. And part of it is that a lot of us on Unwell come from the theater world. And in theater, when you are doing a play that is not a new work, and and you know, also often new works, but um there is a uh, sometimes a culture and most often a legal necessity to not change any of the writer's lines. And I I love that because as a director, I feel like I get to work with the material that the writers have created. And if if there's something that doesn't make sense to me, or if I'm like, ah, oh, that that just like it's not clicking, it means I haven't I haven't figured out something about the characters that we haven't we haven't pulled something out and often by really strictly adhering to the 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 script we will find something new and exciting. Um now during the process of unwell um we do make small changes in the recording room. We will sometimes record alternate versions of lines you know, shift something for the flow or, you know, when, when an actor feels like, you know, they're really in touch with a character, they might say, Ooh, can, can we phrase this like this instead? Because I feel like, you know, that's, that's how the character makes sense to me. And, and we'll, we'll often go with that, but I think there's something really exciting about pushing off of, um, a really sturdy script and having it stable. That being said, uh, we have had some amazing improvisations. The one I do want to talk about is um, with our young actor who plays Jamie Miles, who is the son of one of our writers, uh, Jess Buha. And 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 this is just it's it's one of those moments, you know, Jess and Miles and I are working through this script, and Miles is working on this joke that Jamie delivers. And it's something like, um, it's a knock-knock joke about 
peanut butter. And rather than reading the line as written, he delivers the line that is actually said, which is something like, knock, knock, peanut butter, peanut butter, who? Oh, that's funny because I know a cashew named peanut butter or something like that. <laughs> and it, 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 um, I, I don't understand it, but it's such a, a pure kid joke. And it's so, it's so funny. It's so beautiful. And, you know, Jess is right there and is like, can we please read the joke as I wrote it? And I was like, yeah, we can, but. <laughs> We're not going to use it. But I just got a perfect take. So, no. Um, so, no, I, you know, we generally do try to stick purposefully as close as we can to the script. Because, you know, yeah, we put a lot of really, really careful thought into it. And um, we've got actors who are so good at making it sound like it's the first time they've said the words. And there, you know, there are lots of ways. Improvisation is one way to get there, but also I think trusting the actor's craft and knowing that they will be able to dig out this, you know, this big emotional truth with the words that they've been working with is really important. But also like working with a six-year-old. Just, I mean, come on. (laughs) That kid's too clever. (laughs) Too clever by half. This question comes from Taylor with an exclamation point. Taylor, do you have a favorite setting to write about? The personalities of Wes's house, the observatory, and Fenwood are all very different. Do you have a location whose personality you most enjoy exploring? Man, it's interesting because I'm, um... I like them all. <laughs> I don't have a good answer for this question. Um, I feel like our listeners have really tapped into the idea of like Fenwood as a house being its own complex character. Mm-hmm. I love that yeah. about the show. I love it's one of my favorite things about this show, seeing writers write that personality on the page Mm -hmm. and then hearing it come to life in the show is like so much fun well and and the different writers write the house a little bit a little bit differently and it's really interesting and and each designer uh uses the house a little differently yep yep so that's always i think going to be my fallback position of Mm -hmm. a favorite because it's so central to the story yeah it's it's the most fully developed and yeah and we've got so many interesting tools there yeah there i mean i will also say there is a reason that we keep going back to hunter's diner yeah <laughs> like that first hunter's diner episode i thought was a one-off mm-hmm. and the fact that we have gone back over and over and over again is really a testament to how compelling of a place it is yeah and the personality of it capturing something that, like, we didn't know we needed, mm-hmm. I think, at first. Um, yeah, that that has been a delightful surprise of a location that mm-hmm. I, yeah. Oh, let's see. Um, you know, thinking of it more as a director and a designer. Um, as a designer, I love the kitchen. I love mm. spending time in the kitchen because there's so like I love the cat clock. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love how much you can do with that as a kind of 
way of indicating time and silence and um and anxiety uh i love all of the different things that you can touch and drawers you can open and fridges and things like that that you can like work with in a kitchen and the fenwood kitchen is a really great example of that uh i i love getting designed for hunters it's weird and scary and fun and like moist mm-hmm. in these ways that are like really weird yeah the um the, the that first description of the shag carpet that squishes when you walk on it mm-hmm. just the worst that came right out of a script oh <laughs> um i tell you as a designer i found the observatory to be actually a surprisingly difficult one yeah because it is a big open space without lots of things you can touch to indicate where you are. And as you go under the observatory, you know, you are going from a big open space uh, with lots of reflective surfaces to a slightly smaller big empty space (laughs) in the basement, and then another big empty space that is maybe a little bit less reflective but more haunted in the chapel below. And so it's just like... I feel like it's really hard to make sure you're making each of those a really distinctive thing. And, you know, originally I was thinking, oh, it'll be really easy because in the observatory we'll have lots of beeps and boops and things like that. And I was like, (laughs) no, we won't. Like, none of the equipment is on when any of these people are, like, knocking around focusing the telescope. Like... Also, like, computers just don't actually make that much yeah. noise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Like, a room full of computers is, like, pretty quiet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. But I do, I don't know, I love the observatory, basement, chapel kind of stack. Mm-hmm. It's, um, I love any uh, any setting where you can kind of break into an area below and then go into something even it when, when there are like layers of descent you can do and so the chapel has been a really fun thing to play with in that yeah totally all right well that is what we have time for today thank you all so so much for sending in these great questions it was really fun to get to dive in and think about this show and try to answer some of these We are currently working on bringing you season five. We are so, so excited for you to hear it. Um, So keep your ears peeled for an announcement soon on when that will be dropping. And until then, have a great day. The other thing that was really exciting for me was that I got to... um, Ow! Sorry. (laughs) Sharp kitten. Cat. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish. Please hold. Your call is very important to us, and we will get to it as quickly as we can. The cataclysm is frightening for everyone. Remember, 
In times like these, we need to stick together more than ever. If you need emergency assistance, please call 999. Your position in the queue is 333. Hello, you've reached the Cataclysm Casualties Hotline. Can I take your name and date of birth? Peretti Green. Morgan Jones. Hu Jun Liu. Gwen Turner. Just call me Di. Okay, and who are you calling for today? My mum. Shan Thomas. She was in Aberystwyth. Matthew and Louise Turner. Uh, in Kirkwall, on Orkney. My father, Kai Liu. Ben. Ben Jones. I, I saw something on the news about a sea serpent. He's 15 years old. Anna and Sophie Green in Portsmouth. What's happening in Kowloon? Listen, is this real? I've been seeing news reports about dragons. So let me look that up for you. Where are you calling from today? Bristol. 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 Leicester. I'm so sorry. It looks like we haven't got anyone listed under that name on the database. This means they haven't been listed as a fatality. Call back tomorrow, and if you haven't heard anything from us or your loved one in three days, try the online form. I know this is scary, but it's okay. We're going to get through this. Together. Kamla, a post-apocalyptic audio drama by Ella Watts, inspired by folklore and Arthurian legends. Coming January 2024. Produced by Tin Can Audio.